Black Cats Run Podcast, Episode 2, Power to Wait. I want to encourage um, and, you know, really also invite people to follow the Instagram page. goal in having an Instagram page is to create a space where um, folks who are listening uh, can go to share what they think, they have ideas that they want to see represented or topics they want to see covered, um, a space where people can post that. Um, so it's uh, Insta, Insta handle for that is at Black Cats Run. So check that out uh, if you're on Instagram and that's something that's interesting to you. For this episode, I wanted to speak a little bit more directly to those of us who um, aren't runners or don't have a strong identity with the sport of running. I think in the first episode, a lot of times we came down to examples and contexts um, about running. Historically, we talked about, you know, a lot about Pavo Nermi as a reference point, um, but we, you know, made reference to Arthur Lydiard and the New Zealand runners. We made reference to Peter Snell. We made reference to Zadipek. And we didn't really refer to any specific examples of cycling. And, you know, I, I think we want to emphasize that the goal of this podcast is to be um, an endurance sport podcast, that that's what we're trying to understand. And bringing cycling and running together is something that I want to do in the podcast um, because I think that conceptually there's a lot to be learned from these two different things. And, you know, no offense to swimming um, or, you know, speed skating or, you know, there are other endurance disciplines out there that I recognize that I'm not maybe giving total credit or direct acknowledgement to. But to me, I, I would say that cycling and running are probably two of the most generally accessible activities. Running is probably the easiest to get into. It's also probably... I mean, I would say in, in the United States is probably the most competitive um, of the endurance sports just due to the level of massive participation and the fact that it is a sport that is, you know, supported scholastically, that there's a pathway for that through school. But that, I think, is a part of what makes thinking about the cycling experience for people who have maybe just done cycling um, so interesting to talk about because it's such a different contrast from the experience of running and what can we learn about sport um, the experience of being an endurance athlete from the experience of cyclists um, and people who maybe that's been, you know, that was the sport that they've got, in, got introduced to. Did they come to that as a junior? Did they come to that um, as a senior athlete? Did they come to that as a master's level athlete? What has their experience been? And, you know, I think the space around that is really different because with running, Right, we get to start out off usually like in a team environment with an organized schedule and a progression and standards and all of these benchmarks and reference points. But I I get the you know feeling that for cycling a lot of people it's something that they just sort of like discover and that maybe they had no knowledge of um, per se. And as an adult athlete, they suddenly sort of become immersed into this and that experience of discovery um, and immersion. Uh, is, I think, very different 
in some ways from run, what runners have because running is just so prevalent. You know, even if you don't run um, as a student, you know, you still probably were exposed um, to, you know, having to do the mile in gym class or, you know, running in some context. Running is a pretty common movement. Um, and sure, a lot of people know how to ride bicycles. Um, but, you know, when you get into, you know, endurance, um, you know, bike, uh, you know, training and racing, it's pretty different from riding your bike around, you know, town or riding your bike up around, you know, the neighborhood or the cul-de-sac or, you know, the suburban grid, depending on, you know, where, where you grew up and where you learned to ride a bike. And I think that when we're thinking about these things, like what is the common ground? And I think that common ground can be found at a core component of their shared endurance experience. And this is something that, you know, sets it apart a little bit from swimming uh, in a way, um, in that cyclists, right, we talk a lot and think a lot about this idea of power to weight ratio and the ability to go uphill fast you know, matters pretty heavily um, to some, in some form at the highest levels of cycling. And, you know, you could look at that in a classics context. You could look at that in a stage racing context. You could look at that um, even in a uh, criterium context. You know, your ability to accelerate is going to be impacted by that. Right, so even if you have a criterion where you may feel that you're avoiding hills, your ability to apply, um, you know, force, you know, relative to your body mass is still going to play a role. And I think we can think of as cyclists that power to weight is sort of like one of these things. Like, what are the things that make cycling unique? And I think a lot of us get into cycling because its uniqueness is so appealing, and that's a part of what makes it interesting. Right, like I said, that ability to discover something on our own versus with running, what runners are having uh, to navigate is an experience that's sort of served up for them. And, you know, especially in American culture um, is, is really sort of, you know, put in place for them. And I think, you know, we also want to acknowledge that um, probably for cyclists outside of the United States, you know, there's a very different experience, but the, the number of, I think it's about a quarter of a million um, high school athletes will run cross country every year in the United States. You know, imagine a quarter of a million, 250,000, you know, teenage girls and boys, you know, juniors out riding and racing road bikes or riding and racing gravel or riding and racing cyclocross. That's just inconceivable. I mean, how many people, you know, under the age of 18, you know, on bikes are a part of an endurance you know, organized team? And then what really are their opportunities to race? You know, imagine 250,000 cyclists progressing through an organized specific, you know, season of competition with designed and targeted championships and all these kinds of things in in place, I think would be totally different. Um, And, but that uniqueness is, I think, creates an opportunity, which for our purposes, you know, that, and there's probably multiple opportunities that you could see in this, but for what we're trying to accomplish, it creates the opportunity to see a totally different experience of endurance sport. And, you know, I think that these concepts of discipline are still profound, and I don't think those are specific to running. I think they exist 
all across, right? And we did talk about, you know, a little bit about like the FTP interval concept. Um, but, you know, you see things like the cyclist training Bible and the proliferation of the idea of zones as a result of the, you know, power meter proliferation, you know, cycling, right? It's just, uh, it's like nuclear proliferation. Everything is proliferating. Um, and you, you know, see that, you know, has its own effect. But I think there's a lot of similarities. And when we see the similarities, so here's, I think, something that's really kind of fascinating to try to tease out. When we see the similarities between these things, which are structured and exist very differently in terms of organization and social space. And I think for a lot of, um, and I, to be honest, you know, just to be disclosure, right? I've never, I don't experience it this way, but I, I think that for a lot of cyclists, there's like a strong countercultural um, identity. And you, I feel that you see a lot more countercultural style with that and like cycling style, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how people like style their appearance and then how they style, um, you know, their sort of like, you know, leisure time, you know, fashion or their sort of like, you know, fashion outside of the exercise, outside of doing exercise for the sport, I think has a lot more in common with like, um, you know, mountaineering and rock climbing and, you know, EMS type vibes than it does with cycling, which I think has what, I mean, sorry, than cycling does with running, which we're running, I'm saying this backwards and totally messed up. Let's just try again. Running on the other hand, I think has way more of this, um, mainstreamy feel, you know, and sort of like a Nike type affiliation. And I think, and then you sort of have like this Brooks Brothers thing going on with Tracksmith, which is its own other kind of interesting dynamic. And I think, you know, that would be another topic to talk about would be how does fashion involved in, um, and how does that shape how we think about sports? And I think that, you know, when we look at that distinction, Right, I think we can kind of say that it's not like cycling and running are clones of each other in terms of you know the social norms. Like I think runners don't really necessarily present as countercultural, but that's something that's changed. You know, I think if you go back, you know, to the seventies and eighties, um, I think that it was still very much the case that running was pretty like against the grain. And I wonder too if in cycling as sort of the rise and fall of, you know, Lance Armstrong's career and his, you know, public image and the way that's fluctuated. Uh, I wonder if, you know, as Frank Shorter and, you know, with the Olympic marathon success and then Joni Benoit and, you know, I wonder if that sort of brought running from that sort of countercultural space to that mainstream space because you had right, you know, the Grateful Dead, you know, writing lyrics about long distance runners at one time. Um, And now it's not really, (laughs) it doesn't have that same kind of status, right? It's become this very vanilla and like runner's world is a lifestyle magazine. And at one time, like, you know, that publication was where you went to like, try to learn about actual training ideas. Um, And, you know, that's just gone. Um, But when we look at you know, cycling, like did cycling sort of slide and not that it's a bad place to be in, 
but did it sort of slide back on that sort of mass popularity scale? And has it sort of like reclaimed some of that countercultural space because of both the fact that um, there haven't been any American performers on an international level to really go out and legitimately compete on a regular basis and no disrespect to, you know, athletes, you know, who have gone out and had, um, you know, noteworthy race successes in international competition. But I think we would be kidding ourselves um, if we tried to pretend that that was recognized on a mass scale in American popular sports culture, because it just, I mean, it, it hasn't. And I mean, whether that's right or wrong, I mean, that's sort of that market thing is that, you know, our sports culture is driven by these industry norms, which is like if people aren't consuming it and you have this other alternative that people are consuming, you're not going to turn down that other alternative to try to develop this other thing that isn't yielding. I mean, that's the economics of opportunity cost, and that's why it's so hard to, to quote-unquote, grow um, any sport like cycling. And running has basically, I think, become something that's been driven by mass participation, and mass participation is what's moved to be mainstream. So very different um, in terms of cultural experiences, and I think running, right, more socially vanilla um, and cycling taking on more of this, like, you know, rock climbing grunge aesthetic, you know, um, and, you know, that's part of that superficial, and I think that cultural stuff is kind of interesting to tease out. And that does have an effect too on, on the choices we make about training. But really what we're looking at there is we're talking about conformity and that both of these sports are driven by their own um, desires to conform. It's just that the running conformity um, is just more common and that forces it to then consequently appear, appear more mainstream, more people do it. And if more people do, and as more people do cycling, which I think will happen through gravel, I think it will, lo- it will just lose you know, that kind of edginess that I think a lot of people have found um, to be socially resonant. So despite those, right, clearly defined differences, or hopefully now clearly defined differences, I think it's probably um, fair to say there's a lot in common with these experiences. And that's why I'm calling this episode Power to Wait, because what we want to do is establish that idea is like, what do these two sports have in common? Is there power to weight? Running is also a power to weight sport. I mean, what's incredible about some of these elite runners, like Elliot Kipchoge, I saw a picture on Annemiek van Vleuten's Instagram the other day of her with Elliot Kipchoge. And like, you kind of know Elliot Kipchoge is small, but like he's smaller than Annemiek. Right. And, you know, she's definitely a compact, lean athlete, you know, and super successful, probably will not receive. We talked about it being legendary, right, and how difficult it is to be recognized. But, you know, I, I, whatever recognition she gets um, at the when she's, you know, done with elite competition, um, it's not going to be um, what it should what it should be. Because her her capacity and what she's doing is just unbelievable, and I say that you know very genuinely, I you know really think that that's the case. Even you know, and I say that compared to not just you know the history of the female athletes, but I'm just saying overall, like it's un- it's incredible. But you know, these runners, I mean, incredibly small, compact people, you know, and 
to see that, right, here's the person to break um, two hours in the marathon. And let's not forget that when Elliot Kipchoge was 18 years old, he won the world championship 5,000 meters in 1258 against, you know, El Garouge and Kenanisa Bekele, right? I think, if I'm remembering Kenanisa Bekele's. No, or was that highly... Uh, 2003, he definitely took down El Garouge. We'll have to fact check this and bring that up later for another podcast and clarify. But like at 18, right? And here he is now, you know, the first person to run under two hours for the, you know, marathon and, you know, dangerously close to a sub two hour marathon for a legitimate IAAF world record. Although I don't think that the, I mean, the sub two hour marathon was still sub two hour marathon. I don't think you can knock that. Um, but these runners, and in the sport of running, you're battling the same thing that cyclists are battling. And I think that as runners and cyclists, um, even if we only do one, I would say two things. I would say there's a lot to be learned about our sport by looking at where are these overlaps and where are these contrasts between you know, our side of this and then this other side. And I think... You know, runners shouldn't be rejective of the value of cycling because, you know, cycling has this sort of counter, more countercultural uh, bent to it when you start to really get into the social space of the sport sometimes. And I don't think that cyclists should be rejected of runners because they're, you know, too vanilla or mainstream or their training seems too regimented. And I think that, you know, cyclists are actually probably a lot more regimented in their training than they're maybe willing to acknowledge. And the fact that you stop, you know, and take pictures of your coffee doesn't mean that you aren't following a really, you know, discipline-oriented training model, right? But like, you know, how are those narratives, those ways we talk, right? Pictures are worth a thousand words. How are the pictures we post, you know, online? How do those influence how we think about these different sports? But seeing things similarly, I think, is really potentially valuable and meaningful for these two different sports. One example would be the, con- the context of like how much should we do. So we talked about the 100-mile training week as these, which for people who are in the world of cycling and don't know about running, and maybe we're getting lost there, to break that down in the you know, world of elite running historically, the 100-mile training week is held up as the like sort of ultimate benchmark of you know high volume training and then people who go over that are just like considered alien and that in cycling right you're talking more about maybe hours per week and you can count the miles but like there's you know you you know that your speed in training isn't really that important but for runners are obsessed with their velocity right which they're not measuring they're not measuring that in miles per hour they're measuring that in minutes per mile Right, and then they're trying to associate those speeds directly with, like in cycling, like we have those training zones. We're trying to associate those speeds directly um, with those training zones. But in cycling, like we're using the the watts to do that and the heart rate to do that. And like running doesn't really take on the heart rate stuff. Like I think the reality is, is that basically no high school programs, and even though athletes are all now showing up. I mean, all is an overstatement, but a lot more and more athletes are showing up to cross-country practice in high school with GPS watches, you know, with a heart rate function. And, like, there aren't heart rate-based training models being put into place on a mass scale. 
And then, and the same thing's true in college. Um, you know, you don't really hear this being talked about as like, well, we're all training based off of heart rate. And could that happen down the road? Maybe, but the heart rate technology has been around for like decades and it still hasn't taken hold. So, I mean, there's got to be some sort of a barrier or a block to that. Is that something that runners can, you know, start to think about differently from cycling is like, okay, is calculating everything based off of pace, is that the best way to do that? As cyclists, on the other hand, like we know not only can like counting our miles per week is sort of like maybe not the most useful way to think about training, but we also, I think, know that, you know, velocity can be very misleading. And I think we can get obsessed with, you know, things like, you know, averaging 20 miles an hour for rides. And, you know, from Strava, you get the impression that for some people, velocity is the driving thing that they're looking at. But is that velocity really that helpful? You know, because terrain can make a big difference. And you can be a really, you also can think, go back to this power to weight concept. Like you can be a really powerful rider and to go out and do effective training, you might need to go 16, 17 miles an hour. So I did some interesting um, uh, research where um, Jillian Bennett, who I coach and work with on her training around her cycling, um, the first year she went and did the pro national road race, you know, kind of leading up to that, I um, looked at the entrance and then for people who had you know public strava data i just kind of did some profiling of say okay i kind of want to see like where these people are right kind of get a sense of what is she doing um versus you know how does that compare to what other people are doing and is there anything in here that's sort of predictive of success and you know i tried crunching some numbers uh, on my kind of amateur mathematician way and looked looked for different factors and you saw variance in um how many hours per week was pretty big you saw variance in miles you saw variance in training speed and none of this stuff really seemed to matter but what ended up being very predictive um of how well people seem to do at the national championship but also overall with races was um, and I had looked at the training they had done thus far in the calendar year. The more feet climbed per mile, the more effective that is. So for runners, right, if we want to maximize our velocity, what are runners going to do? Runners are going to go to the courses, and you see this, right, where like they're going to find the flattest loops they can. And it's crazy to me to hear the kinds of things that runners think are hilly. You know, like you have like a slight terrain variation. People are like, oh my God, there's this big hill. And cycling, in my experience with cycling, and I've done, you know, racing on the bike for about probably a decade now. And I've done well over 100 races, you know, and I've started doing more of the gravel racing too in the last couple of years myself and not just the stuff on the road bike. But I've done a lot of this stuff. Um, including dabbling in, you know, stage race and which, you know, that's some hard, that's hard work right there. Um, but it really makes you appreciate like, and think about hills totally differently, you know, and for runners to be out there drilling velocity, you know, is maybe not actually that productive. And maybe when we're thinking about this, 
you know, stuff differently can we learn from, right, learning from other sports, right? Can we learn as runners, can we learn from this cycling um, approach to be like, we don't want to count the miles, we don't really care about how fast we go, we need to have these other metrics. And you do see these power meters now for running, and I have not really thinking I want to invest in that because I'm not convinced that that's there's some way that that strain gauge actually knows how many watts you're doing by putting a pod on your shoe. I don't understand how that technology works, and I'm not going to drop hundreds of dollars on something like that. It would be interesting if I knew that it worked, but you know I don't know how that would make sense. So, and I feel like it would have to be just sort of like guesstimating based on your weight and your speed and your stride rate that this is the power, right? And that it's just sort of some more complicated pedometer function. But that's total speculation. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's awesome and super accurate and I need to get with the program. But different ways of quantifying and evaluating work, right? And we know as cyclists that we can be going fast and slow and then we might be shocked to see you know, the variance in watts might sort of sometimes defy expectations. You know, and, and famously, Team Sky and Bradley Wiggins and then Chris Froome, I think, really brought to, you know, um, the mainstream um, and an idea that I think really is an example of something stepping out of cycling culture and into the broader athletic space, right, ideas of, like, uh, marginal gains. But more specifically and probably more important was, like, riding to power and using their power meter as a pacing strategy, um, and then, you know, that brings up the whole idea is that it's cheating and it's not attacking. But the reality is you could take away the power meter and you could probably tell people to go, okay, do what's going to work and you're going to do that, right? You know, go to that. I want you to ride the best effort that you can do up and, and up every climb. Like I want you to average overall the fastest net speed that you can up all of the, you know, climbs on today's stage. And they'd probably go out and do basically, you know, maybe exactly the same thing. If you took away Elliot Kipchoge's watch, I think it's very likely he would run probably the exact same time, you know, plus or minus five seconds for the marathon. You know, because I, I think when you really get to such a high level of fitness, you can't get there without understanding more about your body. And that system of measurement becomes like a language. You know, did Pavel Nurmi really need the stopwatch? Or did that just sort of become like this, like, um, mechanism to think. And I remember that Tommy, Tommy D, Tom DeMoulin was retired now, but, you know, really, you know, ripped it up for a few years on the bike. You know, I, the story was that on the time trials, he didn't want any information and he just wanted to focus on how he felt. Right. And, you know, he was, he exceptional, right. Was very close to being um, a, somebody to win the uh, Giro and the tour. And I think his, his results that year in 2018 in the Giro, his Giro Tour double, I think, are one of the most impressive things to happen in cycling um, in the history of the sport. And I think it's probably underrated. So, right, this sort of battle of, like, perception, like, how do we think about this stuff? Because power to weight is about, like, work. And you can feel your body working against, you know, the resistances that are imposed on it. And I think that means that there's meaning to intuitiveness, and when I coached, um, you know, in that cross-country context, you know, I actually took a lot of ideas from cycling training and I applied that. Like we use the language of the zones and the training zones and that's how I, you know, and I use that and kind of like 
the subjective descriptions of what those should feel like, because obviously we don't have the power meters for the runners on the way you can stick them on your bike, um, nor would we have had the financial resources to do that anyway. But we talked about the zones, and that's how we thought about our training, and that became our language. And I think that was really key to our success because that also opened the door to like, okay, there's a different way to think about this than just thinking about race-specific intensity and working at different percentages of race intensity, right? And I, it's very common for runners, at a, even at a very high level, you know, in the United States to talk about like, well, mile pace, 3,000-meter pace, 5,000-meter pace, 10,000-meter pace. And I, th- I don't really agree with that concept because I think your fitness is going to change throughout the year. And so the pace that that is is going to change. And the appropriateness of working that that intensity can change. But I also think we see like the limitations with the power meter too. Like the power meter both points to the fact that there's maybe better ways to think about your effort, but it also points to like the limitations of like, okay, once you have an external mechanism to try to quantify effort like you're a machine, like you now bring in, you know, you're just sort of calling up those discipline ideas, right? That training and hitting your numbers is an act of discipline, and in cycling, you'll have people who socially project as super countercultural, and it's like they're they're keeping their sort of you know very you know their disciplined thing is like very like locked down and kept away because it's like you know you sometimes wonder like are you allowed as a cyclist to do that because that's not you know sufficiently you know the social you know countercultural norm of being a free spirited cyclist who's against the grain and blah 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 right and you know that kind of dialogue, maybe does that repress how we think about this stuff? But, you know, for cycling, you know, we know that there's a huge difference and a huge benefit to like, you know, the courses that we pick, right? And like changing the amount of climbing we do on a ride matters significantly, right? And because that's going to really engage our our training and our fitness. And with Jillian, you know, what we try to do is we try to do a lot of riding, um, and then we try to do, you know, loops that have hills. And, you know, where we're training, we're not in the, some sort of mountain foothills area. But I don't think you need to train in the mountains. And I don't think you need to train at elevation. I think you just need to do lots of things that are, you know, frequently, you know, require you to have to work. And, you know, by doing rides that are just hilly, 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 and there's just steep pitch after steep pitch, after steep pitch, after steep pitch, and there's no long sections where you can just sit there and just, you know, spin away, you know, with, you know, your heart rate, but then not really doing any work with the muscles. And, you know, so you get really strong from training, you know, like that in that context. And my youngest brother, um, who's also raced the pro national uh, road race, um, and, you know, has an FTP that I think when he's at peak fitness is probably 5.5 to 5.8 watts per kilogram. And if you don't want to believe me, that's fine. But, um, you know, we have the data to show this. And, you know, like, when we see this stuff, um, like, it's not coming from, you know, these like micromanaged workouts, right? And so this is an extension of what I saw with the cross country team, right, is that we don't need these specific, you know, race intensity things. And then we're going and, um, you know, we're doing this, this stuff and approaching the concept of the stress in a different way. And like looking at the rhythm of training. And I think when you're doing, for example, both of these activities together, I think it starts to change the way you think. 
because when you only ever experience one, um, I think, you know, as a consequence, right, that's your language, that's how you're going to talk when you talk about sport. Um, and I, and I you know, interact with people in cycling who can't conceive of, you know, running at all. That's absurd. And it's like, you know, a horrifying concept. And they, you know, insist they would never do it. And runners are, I, I find, more open to cycling. But their attitude is, I think, oftentimes, that, well, cycling is this thing that you do if you're hurt, right? If you're injured, it's a form of cross-training. And so it's, like, therefore less productive than uh, you're running. And I think that those mentalities aren't really true. And one of the things I want to talk about, you know, in this podcast overall is how I think that there's a model of endurance training now where doing like cycling and running in conjunction is a superior way to train for both sports, even if you're only looking to compete in those sports. And the way we can get to that understanding is by talking about this stuff in different ways and trying to recognize what's important um, or significant to consider. So, but circling back to the sort of idea of like volume and like, can we think of different ways and how we might quantify training? So hours per week, you know, cyclists talk about doing 20 hours a week as sort of a, a standard. And then we talk about doing 30 hours a week um, as like this sort of like that 30 hours a week, I think is seems to me be the cycling equivalent of the running 100-mile um, week. And in running terms for cyclists, like if you're an elite runner, maybe you're averaging across all of your training um, six-minute pace. Well, that means you're doing 10 hours a week. Maybe you have additional work in there, and maybe you get up to 120 miles a week. So maybe you're doing like 12 or 13 hours a week, which for a cyclist is like crazy, Right. But I think in cycling, you know, when you look at that volume, like how much of that is really effective? How much time are you actually really sort of engaging that power to weight system? See, because when the runner is working out, like they're not doing the hours that you're doing on the bike because they're limited, right, by the fact everything they do is working against that power to weight, even to some extent running downhill. But like when you're running, I I think of running sometimes as just like this endurance plyometric because you know in walking you always have one foot on the ground you know one foot two feet one foot two feet and then running you only have one foot on the ground and then you have these periods obviously where you you know you're jumping through the air and so that makes it plyometric so and even when you're running downhill you're still launching yourself through the air right it's just that now gravity is a little bit more of your ally than your adversary um but you're working the whole time you know, yeah, you can recover on the downhill, but like, it's not like in cycling where, you know, in some of these races, you can just basically get in the drops and be going 50 to 60 miles an hour downhill and doing nothing except trying not to freaking die, right? You know, I remember being like, I mean, you see stuff about people in these big races, you know, hitting these speeds and it's, you know, becomes sort of abstract because it's on TV. But, you know, when my brother did the, GMSR race, um, you know, one year where it was extremely cold and raining, you know, I th- he talked about on the descent from the first of the three climbs, like I think getting up to like 63 or 65 miles an hour, you know, and to me that's just like when you hear that and like you're actually doing that, that's like holy crap, you know, and because you realize like what happens and you see this sometimes like, 
you know, in the tour, people go off the road on these descents and it's not pretty, right? Um, and, you know, there's risk involved in cycling in a way that there just, you know, really isn't with running. Um, and maybe that helps <laughs> running on a mass participation level because, you know, that danger, that risk, that potential risk isn't as high. Although it's certainly true that, you know, if you're prudent with cycling, you can, you know, really, you know, minimize that, limit that. So setting, you know, these, you know, crazy speeds aside, right, like you have this huge variance, right, in work and you have periods of work and non-work, you know, so you might be riding, you know, I think a three-hour ride, you know, to me is is sort of maybe not physiologically proportional to, but I think, you know, a three-hour ride is kind of similar to maybe like, you know, an eight to 10-mile run, you know, those are going to take totally different amounts of time, but I think in terms of like kind of the amount of fatigue and sort of generic benefit, which if you can say that a specific length of ride or length of run has benefit, you know, that's that's different. And I think for riders too, though, again, you're seeing the difference of we're quantifying our, you know, units of training in time, right? Runners are going to do mile repeats, um, but uh, cyclists are going to do 20-minute repeats. And thinking about that sort of how do we measure work duration? So one of the things that we did as a standard training exercise in college um, for cross-country is going um, to this uh, Nordic Ski Trail Center and running loops, uh, different loops on the trails. And it would be on a set clock, kind of like in the pool, so everybody would start, and it might be like a 2,000-meter loop or something, or like a 3,000-meter loop. So it might, like, the best people might do it in, I'm sort of guesstimating the times, but maybe they're doing it in, like, 9.50, right? And the whole thing might be on, like, 13 minutes or something. And then I would come through in, like, 11.40 or whatever. And, you know, the point we're trying to illustrate here is, like, so I'm working now an additional two minutes, which might not seem like, you know, two minutes to a cyclist might not seem like much, but, you know, in running terms, especially when like the, the work interval is, you know, for the fittest people on the team is, you know, nine minutes and 50 seconds, you know, you add two more minutes to that, that's more than 20% additional work. Plus, you know, I now I'm doing 20% more work and it's cutting in to the total uh, interval, right, of recovery, because I'm not getting, so I'm doing 20% more work and that's taking away from my recovery and then we're doing this maybe four times. And I mean, the concept of the workout wasn't like, okay, you're working at this sort of different zone, right? It wasn't like, well, you're supposed to be in zone blank, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be longer work and you don't need as much recovery, but these guys are in zone, this other zone. It wasn't like I was in zone three and they're in zone four, and a, zone four to five, we were all supposed to be doing the same thing because it was based on this, you know, race intensity model, right? We were basically supposed to be out there doing race pace, you know, essentially. And, you know, the model was to sort of equate these performances to, you know, an equivalence of, you know, what would that be predictive of in terms of like 8K, um, you know, but then the issue of recovery, I think, would make it difficult sometimes to go and, and do that. And, you know, I we had a session where we did mile repeats, um, you know, and, and this is embarrassing for me, uh, but it's what happened. You know, we did mile repeats with like a 90-second rest 
and I did them all in 530, and I was the eighth, eighth best guy on the team because it was important that we ranked, <laughs> we ranked ourselves as if it was a race. And, you know, so I was, had the eighth best workout, and I averaged 530 pace running through these rolling trails in the woods. You know, so if you're running on a track, it probably would have been 520 or 515 pace or something like that, which nothing like, you know, barnstorming. But I did this, and it was like, whoa, you know, you know, you're like, you're almost in the top seven. I was like, yeah, I'm almost in the top seven. That's sick. And then three days later, we went down to the ECAC meet, and I ran probably 31, 48 or something. And I just still have a memory of, like, by the end of the race, and this might not have been true, but just be feeling like I was the only person on the course. And it was insane. Like, I could not run, right? And the reality is I had used that effort in there. But if we start to apply concepts from cycling, we can think about the effort that we're doing. And for me to be going out there doing some sort of you know, effort that was basically probably effectively in zone five, um, you know, I think in cycling terms, we would probably want to recognize that as being, you know, unproductive to do three days before, you know, for me, you know, that was the last race of the season. So for, for me anyway, like you would presume to think the biggest race, you know, I wouldn't tell Jillian to go out and do um, three times, you know, 10 minutes at, you know, 280 watts or 300 watts three days before, you know, racing in Knoxville, you know, or, or racing Unbound or racing, you know, the Tulsa Tough Criteriums, you know, we wouldn't, that would never, that'd be never something we'd do, right? And, you know, so we're more focused on, and we recognize that as being stupid because, you know, of other things, like kind of the, overall, we have an approach that's being driven by a lot, some of the things that I've talked about already, but I think even if you didn't, I think in cycling, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you'd be like, well, obviously that's totally stupid and fatiguing, but in running, because of this bias of velocity, why you tend to look at that, right? And if you're cycling, if you're really focused on velocity and you're like, okay, well, this race is going to be at 25 miles an hour, which is, we know in cycling is a dumb concept also because of all the drafting, right? That the average speed of a race like isn't necessarily that helpful. You got to know what the course is like, you know, how big is the Peloton going to be? And then like, what's the hardest part of the course? But in the velocity only paradigm, right? You might be anxious and be like, okay, I got to go out and I got to, you know, once again, I got to go out and drill 25 miles an hour. But when you go to that course in Knoxville, you're recognizing that, well, what this course really is, is this is just going up this hill. So like the whole thing is ironically like an interval workout. And it actually plays out every year, I would argue, like an interval workout. Because like the interval workouts I've done where, you know, I talked about, you know, the mile repeat showdowns on the track in college where people would get to the end of the sessions and, you know, despite, you know, being pro their training program was to run 508s or something. Now they're running 437, you know, or where we're doing eight, eight by 800s with probably like, a, you know, a minute to 90 second recovery. And by the end, guys are running 202, 203, right? Where it's just like, how did we not have seven guys running 25, 30 to 24 20 i don't understand because the stuff that people were doing in training you know really indicated a level of ability that just wasn't coming out in the racing but i think that says something about fatigue and you know again like adrenal use and like using up not just the physical energy but also like some of that mental enthusiasm for that and like that race 
in Knoxville, that's kind of what that looks like too, is people are just out there smashing each other up the climb. And to me, it feels like, you know, in the women's race in particular, you know, that there's this sort of like the, this sort of like elite class of people who have like an international, you know, racing, I, you know, status going out there and just progressively taking people to the woodshed on that climb just every lap, right? And that idea of like the interval workout being a competition of like, and then the, the Peloton, relatively speaking, basically not doing anything the rest of the way and around the course. Um, and I think a part of that, you know, I'm not saying that to insult or belittle the athletes whatsoever, and I hope it's not coming across that way. But I just think there's an interesting parallel to that dynamic. And so, you know, is there value for cyclists maybe? Like, is there something to be learned from, you know, would the, our runners on the college team have been better prepared or was that really what they were learning to do, right? Or are we turning the, the national road race in Knoxville, are we turning that into just sort of like a discipline thing where like rather than being like, okay, we got to duke this out over the whole course, we're going to turn this into this like discipline test where collectively the consciousness of the group is like, okay, the shared road climb is hard enough that we're going to just like, you know, increasingly rip each other's legs off. But then it also gives ground to the breakaway, you know, really easily because if you're only riding hard up a climb, which, you know, is like, you know, around two minutes, you know, you're not going to pull people back and, you know, in that regard. And so it looks like they're just sort of not, you know, not doing anything, but I think it becomes all about the climb and, you know, testing yourselves against the climb and sort of like the big dogs, you know, have that sort of like on lockdown, you know, and, you know, obviously like those kinds of dynamics about, you know, cycling, racing, you can go on into that. Like that's the nature of the sport. And I'm not saying that's bad, but it's very different from running because in running you have more of an ability to directly impose your will on the field of experience. And, you know, it's interesting that in cycling, right, is our training kind of cause us to default to that? Is the reason why the field doing that, is that because of the ways? So what we're getting at here is that these sports have different, despite the fact that I'm, what I'm saying is these sports are very similar. They're both driven by this power to weight concept and they should be looking at each other and being like, okay, we're both trying to solve the same problem. And then, you know, the events that we do, you know, the machines we use, right? Some people are just using our body and shoes. And then, you know, other people are using, you know, the machine of the bicycle, but like the ways we're expressing that power to weight competition is very different, but those differences and then culturally, right, we're different, but those differences are preventing us from maybe seeing the levels of similarities, which are like actually like way more common than they are. But do the ways in which these different sports isolate themselves and apply their own system to try to quantify what they're talking about uh, in terms of training, does that then feed into different styles of racing? Like for running, it's like not running, I think, has become less tactical. And I'm hoping to have uh, my dad on the podcast at some point. Um, he was uh, interstate cross-country champion, Massachusetts and Connecticut 
his senior year in high school and um, was a pretty dominant runner at Bowdoin and, and had um, set a bunch of records at the school and at meets and, um, you know, that held out for 30 plus years um, in some instances. And one of the things he talks about how is like, you know, the point of racing is to race and that, you know, when people are just out here chasing these times, like it's not really like what makes the sport exciting, you know, because then it just becomes this, this, this drag race. But even when running is tactical, there's still that sense of like seize the initiative, you know, put the hammer down um, and that you can just sort of try to impose your will over everybody else. You know, that kind of like Alberto Salazar, and I'm referring to Alberto Salazar um, as, as a racer um, and kind of what he sort of identified with or somebody like Henry Rono, right? And what he was able to do as a racer or even maybe Jerry Lindgren and what he did. Um, and you can start to go on and identify more people. Um, you know, but in cycling, you know, we don't necessarily always see that. But then if you think about people like, you know, Wout van Aert, Annemiek van Vleuten, Matthew van der Poel, um, you know, Chris Froome, um, Lance Armstrong, who, yes, you know, he got whatever about the doping stuff, but like, you know, doping, everybody else who doped, you know, we're still allowed to discuss what they tell us about the sport. So I think it would be stupid to act like, oh, no, we can't, you know, use the Lance Armstrong years as information about sport because it, it happened, right? And it was, it's tangible and it's evidence and it's part of the history of the sport. But like you do see like the really, you know, best remembered cyclists are people who are able to find a way to impose their will. And, you know, obviously they're relying heavily on help from other people. And then like, you know, the narrative tends to hype that up. But in cycling, you know, can we benefit from, understanding more about how running and the sport of running is developing to get people to impose their will. Because even though runners are training, you know, even at the, what we're saying is even at like the peak volume of what runners do, um, they're doing, you know, 50% to 35% of what the peak volume of cyclists will do. And then, and yet they're able to do these, you know, incredible things and just sustain these efforts which I think cyclists would love to be able to go and hit climbs with that kind of performance. Um, and, but a lot of cyclists struggle to do that. And the way cyclists try to quantify training, watts and then hours, and then you know, hear about you know, oh, 30 hours a week and, and nothing really results from that. And what I found, so circling back to the Knoxville race and that research I did that uh, first year Jillian competed in that, what I found is the only thing that was really predictive of success um, was feet per mile in training. So per mile of training or volume unit of training, how much climbing um, did they do, right? How many, what was their average elevation per mile? And, you know, I talked earlier in the podcast about, you know, my brother saying that like 100 feet per mile is the gold standard, um, you know, and that's how he thinks about that in his training approach and with his psych, especially with, I think with his bike riding, I don't, I haven't talked to him about, you know, how he thinks about elevation gain with running, but, you know, for me, for running and riding, I've also thought about that. And so I know we've shared kind of notes and ideas about this, but there's also an element of a, a semi-independently reaching 
similar or the same conclusions about this, right? And so running is saying that like, okay, we're not doing as much as cyclists, but we're getting these really incredible aerobic capacities. And then cyclists are looking to do more and more volume and like are willing, you know, oh, I'm doing 30 hours a week and whatever. And it's like, whoa, but you know, much, you know, it's not like that's okay. Well, now those people are just riding off the front in mass and leaving everybody behind. Um, and then to be fair with that sample that I looked at for the um, women's entrance for that race, like there weren't a bunch of people doing that. And I think the average volume was like closer to 10 than it was to 20. And maybe a part of that, you know, speaks to, you know, A, just the difficulty of being a um, full-time student or having a job and then somehow exercising, you know, 20 plus hours a week. Although I think, you know, if you divide it up, you don't try to do it all in one one setting. I think it's maybe not quite as difficult as you might imagine, although it's certainly still challenging and I acknowledge that. Um but I also think it tells us something about like the diffuseness of understanding about training in cycling, that there aren't these common things. And so like the common understandings in running can be like obstacles too. But I think that sometimes the, you know, marginal counterculture nature of cycling means that like finding information about it, it's hard enough to find training information for running these days, despite uh, the internet, um, you know, you know, let's run is some is like such a weird place. I don't really feel that reading, um, you know, the message boards is really going to help you that much. Although it's like pretty interesting from if you have just like an ethnographic curiosity. And by the same token, I don't really see that with cycling. Perhaps more so, it's harder to find useful information. You really have to dig, and then you quickly hit that, you know, biochem barrier, exercise physiology barrier, you have to be willing to engage with that. And I think for a lot of people, that's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, and then I think like you see like things like training peaks really start to drive the dominant paradigm for that, you know, but you know, you could then ask like, well, what about the volume? So if cycling volume, like isn't as productive per unit of time, right? And then we're also not doing a massive amount of time to try to like compensate for that you know, whereas if like a run, like if you run for an hour, like every second of that hour is is productive. But if you ride for an hour, like there's so many variables that could like basically make that the equivalent of doing like a, a 15 to 20 minute run, you know, and that 15 to 20 minutes of like actual beneficial work might not even be continuous within the ride, right? And so then you start doing these ridiculous volumes to get the same kind of benefit that you could do like if you had a different concept of how to approach your training and you designed your loops differently, right? And so what we're doing is like, I'm just trying to open the bean can here on how can we talk about both of these things at the same time and start to build better ideas about training for both. And I think that, you know, the takeaway is that we all really want to recognize that, okay, the power to weight battle, that's the battle that we're fighting in these sports, right? You know, cycling, we feel that acutely when we're climbing and you need to be able to climb. If you're, you know, a bigger sort of higher power rider, like you still need to be able to climb. It's just, you're going to excel at climbs that are shorter in duration. And if you're a lighter 
um, and you have a really good power to weight ratio, but maybe not the overall power, you really have to have that uh, down for, um, you know, those long climbs, right? You have to be able to climb well for that. So if you want to be successful in cycling, you have to be able to climb. It's just that the climbing is going to be different in different ways. And I think that's like the make or break, right? And the same power to climb is also the power, you know, to a similar concept to how do I break away? How do I ride independently? So I want to welcome the cyclists here too. And I don't want you to feel like your experience is marginalized. I'm just as curious about, you know, what can we learn about cycling as anything else? And I hope that this initial four-way here, foray, excuse me, into this is helping everybody see that there's like this really cool, exciting um, synergy here where, you know, what we get from combining these two things together, that whole is definitely going to be greater than the sum of its parts. And picking that apart is something I'm really excited to do. And I hope that you're now seeing the possibilities in that as well. So that's it for this episode. There will not be a uh, multi-part breakdown for this. Um, But again, feel free to check out and follow on the Instagram. And if you have thoughts um, about this kind of stuff, we'll create spaces or posts where people can comment and and discuss um, and, and see if we can kind of develop some dialogue and get more ideas of what would be interesting to talk about. All right, that's it for this episode. Catch you next time.